glass of beer and talk about uh, all the things we care. So spare a minute of your time. Oh, it's time for saloons of the American West. The drinks they drank. What did people really drink in Western saloons? What in tarnation is sarsaparilla? Today we answer all things saloon as we drink coffin varnish and wonder who dropped sticks of dynamite down the saloon chimney. Dismount your horse, mind the tumbleweed, and follow me through weathered saloon doors. Now it's time for some fun, time for some dares. My dog, Noodles and I, walk along the rim of the Grand Canyon. A wild wind howls from a distance. As I look past the miles of jagged sandstone, I hear the faint but unmistakable creak of swinging saloon doors. I'll take a sarsaparilla, a coffin varnish, a tarantula juice cut with turpentine. Tanglefoot and a lukewarm beer. Hold the hops. If it is cold, I will send it back. If it has hops in it, I will send it back. If I enjoy it, I will send it back. Sir, this is a Starbucks. Carry on. Hollywood and swashbuckling cowboy novels have made saloons synonymous with single pours of whiskey out of an unmarked very dirty bottle. But how true is this depiction of Western saloons? Before we answer this question, let's first set the scene. What exactly do we mean when we say Wild West? The Wild West is generally considered to be the period from 1865 to 1900. Following the Civil War, the completion of railroads opened up vast areas west of the Mississippi for settlement. White settlers would claim the land to mine, farm, and ranch. Whether the land in question was theirs to rightfully claim is a question for another episode, but the titular swashbuckling cowboy and lawless fighting saloons came to represent this period in the collective imagination. The common depiction of both, however, is not entirely accurate. To begin with, the first cowboys were actually Spanish vaqueros who introduced cattle to Mexico centuries earlier. Also, former slaves were drawn west by the promise of fair pay, but by and large, they were young men who needed cash. The average cowboy made around $25 to $40 a month. They would herd cattle, care for horses, repair fences, and in some cases, they would help establish frontier towns. Suffice to say, the life of the cowboy was anything but glamorous. And so here is our question. What sounds refreshing to you after a 15-hour day herding cattle in the Arizona sun? Enter the saloon. If I had to live my life over, I'd live over a saloon. W.C. Fields. Saloons became an integral part of daily life in the American West. 
from small makeshift camps to readily established frontier towns. And don't get me wrong, there absolutely, positively was drinking and gambling. That much is true. But contrary to what many picture, saloons served largely as public centers. Think of makeshift social hubs where information could be relayed and people could find comfort in company at the end of a long day of work. I'll now quote an article entitled, What Saloons Were Really Like in the Old West? To drive this point home. Think of saloons as literal city centers for boom towns. Quote, Saloons served several essential functions in the Wild West and were often the focal point of a camp or town. They were the place to trade furs for supplies, find lodging, and even hold local elections or community gatherings. In the Wild West, you could drink, gamble, and vote all in the same place. If a town didn't have a church, the saloon would often serve as a makeshift chapel with drinking and gambling temporarily suspended for a sermon. End quote. And the absolute importance of saloons to Western life becomes increasingly apparent when you look at the dramatic increase in saloon numbers. For example, in 1855, Denver, Colorado had around 30 saloons. But by 1890, they had 478. Additionally, between 1860 and 1900, the number of bartenders on the frontier increased from around 4,000 to nearly 50,000. Let's give a yee-haw to those statistics. I can't think of a better transition before a deep dive into the actual drinks served within a saloon than a New York Times article published in 1893 entitled A Saloon Fight in San Antonio. San Antonio, Texas, March 12th, 1893. The fight between the ministers and church people of San Antonio and the local liquor dealer over the question of keeping the saloons open on Sunday is becoming warm. It had been reported that a number of the saloon men would close their places of business today of their own accord, but the report proved incorrect, as the saloons, gambling housed, and the places of amusement were wide open, as usual. Here's a question. So, late 19th century, you just walked through swinging saloon doors, past a fist fight or several, and then approach the bar. You look at the many unmarked bottles and see wooden barrels behind the bartender. What do you order? An article by Deborah Hufford, author of Notes from the Frontier, gives kind of a good idea. Bartenders could serve up much more than unlabeled dirty whiskey. In fact, quote, After the Civil War, beer started showing up in Western saloons and became very popular as well. It had as many colorful monikers as whiskey. John Barleycorn, Purge, Hop Juice, Cullabugus, Wubbly Pop, Mancation, Let's Mosey, Laughing Water, Mad Dog, Jesus Juice, Pig's Ear, Strike Me Dead, even Heavy Wet, end quote. <laughs> but if you were to order just a Jesus Juice, for instance, what would that look and taste like? 
The answer is largely. It depended on where you were. If you were far off the grid, your beer would likely be homebrewed and almost certainly devoid of hops. They didn't grow well in hot places, and also it was increasingly difficult to get the hops to remote locations. Quote, Most brews would have come from grains, but lower quality grains not used for bread making, and it would have tasted sweet, like whiskey mash before distillation. But beer in the Old West suffered the same bastardizations as whiskey. Saloon keepers and bar tenders would often dilute beer with quote-unquote enhancers or water to maximize their profits, end quote. Now, it's important to understand beer wasn't widely bottled until 1873. Consequently, most beer was kept in kegs, sometimes barrels, and were served at room temperature as real ale. The beer had no to little head when you poured it, and patrons had to knock it back rather quickly before it became too warm or too flat. So, in summation, for the beer that you would order, quality control simply depended on where you were. Resources couldn't be shipped as easily as in East Coast towns, and the materials you used to brew largely fluctuated in number and quality. Not entirely appealing, you think to yourself, as you look at the worn barrels behind the bar. A late partner in one of the metropolitan breweries says, It is quite notorious if you drink a beer at the brewery and at the public house a little way off, and you find it a very different commodity. A New York Times article published in 1854 entitled Adulteration of Beer. But don't you worry, help appeared as master German brewers moved west. They introduced, quote, better grains, better water sources, better yeast, and hops. They brewed mostly lagers in the beginning as keg beer began to show up in saloons. Patrons noted the marked improvement of the professionally brewed beer over previous home brews that they had been accustomed to, which had been mostly homebrewed, rancid, and weak with no hops, end quote. You overhear other patrons complimenting the beer. So it's a definite option for you to order. So now it's between beer, spirits, and... What's that other weirdly shaped bottle to the right of the bar? I take no sass, but sass barilla. John Wesley Harden, American West outlaw, gunfighter, and controversial folk icon. We ask the bartender about the mystery bottle, who tells us why it's sarsaparilla. Okay, you think to yourself, what is sarsaparilla? Tantri Weeha, writer for the Seattle Times, answers this question pretty thoroughly in What Goes Into Old West Favorites, Sarsaparilla, Sassafras, and Root Beer. I'll be quoting and using this article. Now, a genuine sarsaparilla drink is made from the dried root of any of several plants. And it was widely consumed all across 19th century America and was, quote, easy to find in the local saloon if the one road town one rode into 
had no dedicated apothecary or pharmacy and was supposedly quite popular with cowboys and ranchers looking to tame a rumbling tummy or put a little pep in their step, much as people use kombucha today, end quote. So if you're under the weather after a long day's work, not feeling great, but you still want to socialize, you'll likely find yourself ordering a sarsaparilla over spirits or beer. However, unknown to you, quote, like most patent medicines, sarsaparilla was credited for far more talent than it possessed. Aside from remedying all the usual headaches, stomach aches, tumors, and general weariness, it also sometimes was believed to be a cure for various STDs, herpes, syphilis, and gonorrhea, which of all of these ailments our cowboy suffered from is immaterial, as it would have not cured any of them, end quote. So hopefully this cowboy just has a headache. But interestingly, what was called sarsaparilla, in America at least, often contained no actual smilix root at all. It instead was made with birch oil and another intensely western word sassafras, which was the dried root bark of flowering trees. Sometimes this wannabe sarsaparilla was simply called root beer. Quote, It's an open question as to why sassafras root came to replace sarsaparilla in most root beer recipes, but it might have to do with sarsaparilla's strong, somewhat bitter flavor profile. Sarsaparilla drinks were often made with only sarsaparilla, instead of the bunch of flavors common to root beers, making it perhaps taste a bit more like medicine than refreshing. But sassafras is also medicinal. It induces sweating and was used to treat hangovers and morphine addiction. End quote. Sassafras is now banned for commercial use in America due to the fact that it may or may not be a carcinogenic. Many of the root beers of today still taste like sassafras, however, from artificial sassafras flavoring or extracts. Consequently, none of us are likely to have actually ingested real sassafras or sarsaparilla. But we do have a rough idea of what it would have tasted like at your local saloon in America's West in the late 19th century. A saloon blown up by dynamite. Cincinnati, May 1882. A special dispatch to the commercial from Fort Wayne, Indiana, says William Bodine's saloon at Ocean, 15 miles from here, was blown up by dynamite this evening. The dynamite was thrown down the chimney. The contents of the building were whole destroyed. There was no clue as to the person who caused the explosion. The saloon bartender throws a dirty towel on his shoulder. Over the noise, he calmly asks, What are you drinking? It's got me feeling like Genuinely, thank you for listening to the Beer Nomad podcast. It helps us grow if you could rate and subscribe wherever you're listening now. If you have questions, any at all, about past episodes, this episode, I'm very happy to answer them at my Instagram at the Beer Nomad Van. Otherwise, that is it for this week. Drink good sarsaparilla and be good to each other. Cheers. <laughs>